Safeway makes it easy to save at the pump with your club card because you can use up to 20 cents per gallon in Safeway gas rewards at participating Chevron and Texaco stations. Get more mileage out of your grocery budget, up to 20 cents per gallon. When you shop more at Safeway, you save more at Chevron and Texaco. Maximum reward at participating Chevron or Texaco stations is 20 cents per gallon in a single fill-up, up to 25 gallons. Cannot be combined with any other Safeway gas reward offer. Restrictions and exclusions apply. See complete details at Safeway.com or in-store. Hey, sports fans, Coach Nick here, and welcome to the B-Ball Breakdown Podcast. If you're listening on YouTube, don't forget you can click over and listen to the full audio podcast over on iTunes or on our website or Stitcher or any of those different places. And without further ado, let's bring in Kurt Heelan, the managing editor for Pro Basketball Talk at NBC Sports, and a guy that I've known probably as long as anybody since I started this whole thing. Kurt, how's it going today? It's going well. You know, hey, summer... The kids are back in school. Summer's ending, and and you know there's actually basketball on my TV now again. So I'm I'm kind of happy. I hear you. I mean, you know, it's the dregs of the f- summer fall. Not a lot happening, but uh, certainly people are pouring into our website, and it sounds like uh, they're doing the same for you. And it seems like there's a whole new experience now uh, when you go to Pro Basketball Talk or NBCSports.com/slash/NBA. Yeah, it's it's exactly it. We. Um, We've we, we've as in I had nothing to do with this, but 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 NBA, <laughs> NBC has has redesigned their website, which is something that was needed. The website was very 2010. It needed some updated and changes. Um, and, and NBC has has brought those in and brought those online over the last actually just you know a few days. And uh, the big change for us now is that. What went from being the standard pro basketball talk site is now we have taken over the NBA page at NBC Sports. It, essentially, what was the pro basketball talk page is now NBA, uh, the NBA page at NBC Sports, and that's what you go to. That's where you see the list of headlines and the top stories and, and all that stuff. So it, it's a little bit of an adjustment, but I think it's been really good. We've needed I, – I, the biggest change for us is, and I think biggest change for a lot of our readers, um, much like you, you, I'm sure with your site – we get a lot of stuff off of mobile, a lot of stuff linked off other places, and people click off Twitter. The mobile site on the old the old version was horrible. It's really a nice mobile site now, with, with which adjusts to your tablet or your whatever. So, so you can read it on e- other devices much easier than you used to be able to, which I think is going to be huge for us once we get into the you know I would say once we get into games, but we're kind of into the season. So, I mean, it's been kind of fun to watch FIBA Americas and and uh, some of the games out of out of Europe, which have been really pretty entertaining. So. For us basketball junkies, it's nice to have some stuff this time of year. Yeah, well, has anything uh, stood out at you? I've been keeping half an eye on the ESPN3, the yeah. what I would consider the, the bad experience of having to go to ESPN3.com. But uh, have you has anything caught your eye in the FIBA tournament right now? Uh, you know, I, I, France looked really good. I've watched a couple of their games, but you kind of expect that. I mean, they are the defending European champions. Uh, Tony Parker, you know, I wanted to watch him become the all-time Eurobasket scorer, but he looked that guy is still an elite point guard who really knows how to run a team. And that's a, that's another team. I mean, France had, I, and they don't have them all in this team, but France had 10 guys in the NBA last year. I think people forget that they're, they're deep with NBA talent. It's, it's you know, they've got Rudy Gobert, uh, really nice matchup with him and, and Marcin Gortat uh, the other day uh, from Poland. Uh, but they've, you know, they've got Boris DL. They've got this NBA Batum, all these NBA guys just, they can roll through. And that's a, that's a really good team. Obviously, they've been fun to watch. Uh, and Argentina in FIBA Americas has been better than I thought. Was basically putting the offense on Luis Scola's back, and I didn't think his back could 
carry that kind of weight anymore, but he's been fantastic. You know, the thing I think with Argentina and France, at least what's, you know, the drum beating is that there isn't any fresh talent coming out behind them. Yeah. After Parker is gone, there isn't no, there, there are no like young point guards coming up behind him. And I, I wonder, uh, you know, is that what you're hearing too? Or are there any kind of diamonds out there that we haven't seen yet from these countries? I, I haven't seen them yet, at least in this tournament. And it will be interesting when some of the, uh, you know, some of the Eastern Europeans, you know, Hazonia's looked great. And will some of those countries... Uh, rise up and and you know uh, and, and in the Americas Canada is the team on the rise. I mean Canada's got you know six or seven NBA players on on their right. roster and you know they're fun to watch just because they've got you know Corey Joseph's a solid NBA point guard, but they've got Andrew Wiggins in a situation where he's got room. Like there's just way more space in the, in the FIBA game right now, and he's just he's just tearing it up. He's been fantastic. Yeah, well, I'm looking forward to that because, you know, not that I am not American or I want to cheer for America, but I always love the underdog. And, you know, without question, if it's going to be America versus the world, you know, eventually some of these countries are going to end up having enough talent. I, I think the key here, though, in, in bringing up Tony Parker in France, is that you have to have the guards. You yeah. need to have guys that can handle the pressure, get your, get in your offense. And that's something that we didn't used to see back when you and I were growing up. They just didn't have any guards that could play. Um, and now it looks like we're starting to see some of these guys that can do stuff like Steph Curry, which is really exciting. Yeah, that, you, you, especially in the international game. And it, that was always what made Spain stand out the last couple of years against the U.S. Is you know, You'd get into the Olympics or the World Championships or whatever, or the World Cup, I guess they're calling it now. And the U.S. wisely, Coach K is like, hey, I've got like there aren't other countries in the world that have Russell Westbrooks. Mm-hmm. Let's just play this high pressure aggressive defense and force these other countries to, into turnovers and you know those other countries they have one at best a couple players that that are really you know NBA caliber and can handle this and then you throw somebody like a Kawhi Leonard or, or a Kobe Bryant on them and go shut that guy down and and we could control these teams then you'd get to Spain and suddenly you know they've got Calderon and Fernandez and all these guys who are really quality players and it was a different game suddenly that kind of high pressure tactics didn't work as well, and and the NBA, uh, the USA had to adjust, beat them, but had to adjust, and I, it'll be interesting to see how that adapts over time because Canada may be our biggest threat three four years from now. Absolutely, and you know you didn't even mention you know um, uh, Sergio Fernandez, uh, excuse me, yeah. uh, Sergio Rodriguez. I always do yeah. that, and uh, and Yule, uh, two of my favorite players. Who uh, I guess they're not going to come over uh, to the NBA. I actually had heard rumors uh, on Twitter earlier this summer that Sergio Rodriguez was going to try and come back to the NBA, um, and I was excited to watch him. I turned it on the other day. He didn't have that same like Steve Nashian feel to him like I'd seen you know in the last couple of years. But have you heard anything about that? Uh, I think he poked around and didn't find as much. Um didn't find the money to his liking. I mean, he's getting well played, paid to stay in Europe, so I think that that's kind of what's going down. Yeah. Well, that's too bad because I really feel like, you know, it sounded like he got a bit of a raw deal the first time around in the NBA. And uh, then when you get to watch him in the FIBA stuff and you see yeah. him, you know, he is – uh, he's got a, like a, he's the balls on a string, and he can yeah. make passes with perfect timing, and then he can still shoot and score a little bit when they need him to. Uh, it's so exciting to me when I watch him out there. I guess maybe I shouldn't wish him to come to the NBA because perhaps the, what I love about him so much is what he gets in the FIBA game, and that maybe he wouldn't get in uh, you know in the NBA. Yeah, the other guy, by the way, that now that it, now that we're talking about guards who stood out, I, I've seen some really nice things out of Sark, um, Dario Sark, who will be over with the Sixers. Next year or the year after, you know, we'll see. 
they expect him a little bit next year, but if he stays out at third year, then he's not bound by the rookie scale, you know, uh-huh. back. So I wouldn't be shocked if he spends a third year overseas before he comes over. And it's kind of the Tiago splitter thing where it's like, I can make more if I stay out one more year, but he's looked really good. He's made some impressive passes. Um, he looks like a guy you're, you, where you can see what they like in him. There's a, he seems to have a really good court vision and sense of it. And, uh, if you watch him play, you're like, yeah, that guy's got something. That guy could really do something in the NBA. Well, I'm sure the Sixers fans would be uh, excited to hear that. Uh, you know, uh, it doesn't look like they're going to turn the corner at all, no. uh, you know, for still a little while. And you know what impresses me the most is that just how dedicated they are to this process and how patient they're going to be, it looks like, with with Sam Hinkie and how they're going to, you know, sort of keep developing that. Uh, is that impressive to you as well? I think that that's honestly my biggest question about their process isn't like, you know, they're trying to lose. This is a bad idea. They've taken it to an extreme. Other teams haven't. You know, you've been able to see teams like Milwaukee kind of get sort of bad and bounce back much quicker. But that said, you know, look, they got, you know, they got Okafor. That's huge. That is a cornerstone piece. Whatever he turns out to be as a pro, you know, of the top five picks, he's got like the lowest or the highest floor, I should say. Like, like he's not going to be a bad NBA player. He's going to be a good NBA player. How good, we'll see. But, like, that's the kind of guys they need. We'll see what Sarek is. We'll see what they're able to draft over the next couple of years. My big question has always been, at what point does ownership just get sick of it? Like, at what point does, like, if you're going to commit to this level of rebuild, ownership will say they're on board, and they've clearly been on board for a couple of years, but at what point do they finally say, enough is enough, let's win some games, we're in the East, let's try to make the playoffs. If that starts to come and then they start to shortcut it, it'll get, it'll get far more interesting. But I, right now, I don't see that. They seem fully committed to just continuing to be this team and, and counting on those draft picks coming around. You know what's funny is I kind of just wanted to check to see how long it's been because it seems like it's been like four years of this tanking stuff, right? But in reality, it's only been two because yeah. in the 2012-2013 season, they still had Doug Collins. They won 34 games. And the year before that, they made the playoffs. So this isn't as long as I think it feels. And also, my take on it is you know, people would want to complain that they will um, – uh, you know the, the the fans will turn on them and all this kind of stuff. And I gotta tell you, my my opinion on that stuff is they the fans forget really quick once you start to win a few games. Exactly. I look, winning cures all ills in a lot of ways with those with fans and, and that kind of thing. And and um, you know, it's if they if slash win, but if they turn this around, if if you know, and we didn't even mention Joel Embiid and who I I hope plays in the NBA someday. But that guy had the potential to be a monster if you can ever physically get, you know, get right with the foot. Um, they get all these guys over there, and suddenly in a few years they're pretty good. All the fans will be like, oh, I never left them. <laughs> you know, right, that, right. We were always good with this plan. We were, you know, we trusted the process. And, and it's going to hurt their, you know, game day ticket sales right now and probably their ratings a little bit. But, you know, they've committed to this plan. And it is, if you are not... LA or New York or Miami or Chicago or a team that stands a real chance to pull in a major free agent or Cleveland right now because of who's there. But if you're not able to pull in major free agents like that, then this is really the only way to rebuild. You know, they're, they're, you can rebuild from the middle. Utah's done a pretty good job of it. Um, Milwaukee's doing a good job of it, but it's much harder. This is, <clears throat> this is something that can work 
you've just got to look. Oklahoma City did it, but they also nailed all their draft picks. And I think that that's still the question. Like, have they really nailed these draft picks? And we don't know yet. Like, have they? We don't know how good Sark's going to be. We don't know what's going to happen with Embiid. I mean, have they? They they haven't gotten their Durant and Westbrook and Harden yet. Yeah, and I think that they're well on their way to doing that. But here's the interesting issue: is that as a young team develops, and at some point, right, they're going to have talent. They're going to, you know, every they obviously want to avoid this, you know, mediocrity. They don't want to be eighth or seventh or sixth. However, it seems like the natural trajectory, no matter what you do in the situation they're in now, they're going to end up being eighth for like one of those years, right? You're not going to yeah, just jump fun. from, you know, a non-playoff team to, to third in the conference. So they're actually going to have to deal with that, at least for one of those years, I would imagine. Yeah, I think I think that that's okay as long as your trajectory's up. I mean, as long as you're climbing and getting better and better each year. You know, I, I think right now, like, in the West, you can say, hey, you know, the Pelicans were the eighth seed last year, and they're probably, just because of the depth of the West, not going to be, I mean, seventh, maybe sixth this year at best. Um, mm-hmm. But I don't think that that's necessarily knocking their trajectory. I think they can be a lot better and just not move up because uh, of the depth in the West and that they'll get there eventually. So I, I, it's not that bad. I mean, do you like the schemes you're seeing and the defenses you're seeing out of Philadelphia? I have to admit, Philly has not been as much on my radar the last these two years. So I have not really studied too much. And when I have studied, at least as far as X's and O's, it's on the offensive end. Although what we've been hearing, though, right, is that they've been better defensively than you'd think. I mean, let's see, their, their rating last year was 13th, which is above average. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've seen that they're doing a lot of Spurs stuff. So that's, my, that's more where my focus was the last couple of years. So it, it is worth looking at because you're right, it is a bit of a shocker. There are very few teams that have won 18 games that end up 13th in the league in defense, right? Yeah, and I think that that's the culture Brett Brown's trying to get. And he's got, look, he's got the bodies there with some longer defenders and Nerlens Noel out there and stuff like they, their point guard. I mean, they, they've got some good defenders uh, to start building that kind of culture around. So look, if, if you're going to build a serious contending team, you, you've still, you've got to have a good defense. I mean, there hasn't been a team I think it's, since 2007. I don't think anybody outside of the top seven def, in defensive rating has won an NBA title. You've got to get up there and, and they're building on that end first. It's just that they're, like you said, they're doing some, Spursian sets, but their offense was just been pretty abysmal the last couple of years. Yeah, and again, a function of what they're doing as far as the roster goes as well. Yeah. But I, I always, um, I kept saying that I thought that New Orleans Noel would end up being the best player of that draft. And I thought he'd have even a better year last year because it felt to me that while he was rehabbing that whole first year, he didn't play while all the other college kids were just still playing college. I thought he'd have a huge jump. He didn't really get out the gate that quick, but he certainly finished as one of those guys that's going to be you know, just a, a defensive force. Um, and, but by the way, I want to go back because you mentioned, um, you know, where the, where New Orleans might finish. Um, we can't overlook what they were for a, they're going to have another, a, a more experienced Anthony Davis. They've done some upgrades, but then Alvin Gentry running that club. Yes. I have to tell you, it, I think that they're going to surprise more than people. than you think, I, I look. I'm really high on that pick. Um, I've been picked, but that coaching move. A, because that's a team that should have been playing up tempo. And I think off the top of my head, I think they were because I've written it. They were 22nd or 23rd in the league last year in pace. Yep. That's a team that should have been running much more, especially if you're going to play. Look, you're going to probably start Ashik at the you know at the five at times, but you're going to play Anthony Davis at the five a lot. 
with Ryan with Ryan Anderson, you know, stretching the floor at the four. Run with that group. Just Davis runs the floor so well, and mm-hmm. he's going to be better. Uh, like you said, I mean, that guy's look. That guy's on the learning curve to be the best player on the planet in three to five years. I mean, he's just he's going. He's that good. You know, I, I you know, I can't speak enough about how they've got that core piece. The other thing that they need this year, I think Gentry brings in, you know, a lot of what they need. It's just staying healthy. Like they just they need Drew Holiday for the full season. They need they need Gordon for the season. They need you know Ryan Anderson for the full season. If they just got all their bodies there, I think they're really dangerous. The problem, as mm-hmm. as I've told like a lot of teams, you know, fans of a lot of teams online and in stories, like I look, I think your team's better. The problem is you're in the West. Yeah, absolutely. The West is just I mean. You think about it. Obviously, Golden State's a title contender. <laughs> they 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 want to ring. They're defending. The Spurs, especially with the Aldridge move, are there. The Clippers, their big weakness was depth. They've added a ton of depth. You've got Oklahoma City getting Durant, Westbrook, and Ibaka all healthy and back. You, you've got you know a Houston team that made the conference finals last year and added Ty Lawson to the mix. One of those five teams doesn't even make the second round in the West. I mean, the West is just crazy. Mm-hmm. So I, I think that's the problem. You're like, oh, they're going to be better, but everybody's better, it feels like. Yeah. And here's the other issue, though, because, you know, the Monty Williams thing, and I, I kind of get it. You can sort of see on the face that there were some coaching issues and decisions. And, you know, but, like, but the, here's the other problem. You know, first of all, they were ranked eighth in offense. So we're talking about how much better they're yeah. going to be on offense, yet – that's top 10 and that's great you know and even though the pace was really slow uh they certainly didn't lack for efficiency the defense interestingly enough was 22nd and i feel like that was a big knock on on uh ad was that you know he's he gets a lot of blocks and he gets rebounds and so he but there were some issues with him defensively but the weird thing about that is when you have guys like ashik and anthony davis and um you know you have a, a a a front court that can d- defend like with those guys y- you should be at least average or it's you know yeah. closer to top 10 no definitely and i when you know i'm i'm not letting the cat out of the bag here i, I you know with releasing some secret uh off the record conversation but i was talking with alvin gentry at points during or in and around the finals and he was quick to say like and i, I i'm gonna go blank on who they hired as their assistant coach to run the defense but he was really clear yeah. like around the finals and you'd kind of ask him a little bit about this at practice or on off days and he'd be like yeah defense is where we got to get better like 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 i think we he was excited about all the things they can do on offense but he was quick to say like that's the end of the floor where we can make the dramatic improvement instantly and win a lot more games um and he thought it was schematic and and he thought uh, again, I'm just going blank, but they brought in a, a defensive-minded yeah. assistant coach to, to set everything up. Well, let's talk about that for a second. That's an interesting story. You know, Darren Ehrman is the guy Thank they brought in. Thank you. Good and me. if we all remember, his name might be familiar because he was in Golden State and was the guy that was recording conversations with his bag, you know, the, with his cell phone in his bag, uh, and that got him fired um, I, I even think the story might have been that Mark Jackson marched him out in front of the team and like dressed yeah. him down and kicked him out of the gym as a way of firing him. Um, I think, or it, it was either him or Scalabrini. Either one of those got fired that uh, way. Uh, that, that was that was yeah. It was Ehrman who got uh, the public chastisement. Yeah, that that happened to him. But Mark Jackson let go of some really nice coaches. So. Mm-hmm. Let tell tell me you must have some you know insider thing that you're going to break on our podcast right now about that whole thing, right? I, I, I wish I did. No, I, I, 
I, I do not have anything that good about it. I, I like I said, I Alvin Gentry was crazy excited about the opportunity, but I think for a, what you really sensed from him was a, this is a coach who's been around, who's been a head coach before, who's had some success before. Well, you know, back in Phoenix, but realizes now like. A, he's like, I, how much he learned the last couple of years next to Doc Rivers and and then Steve Kerr in terms of handling people and handling players. He thinks he learned a lot. But what he's really genuinely excited about is Anthony Davis. Like, look, that is a, that is a crazy cornerstone, can win you a title kind of piece. You've got to put the other players around him. You've got to put the system. But there are a handful of those guys in the league, and he gets to coach one of them, and he sees this as his best opportunity. Without question. And it's going to be really fun, especially if they can get Ryan Anderson healthy, because uh, you get him uh, paired with Anthony Davis. You know, as, as I remember, I need to check real quick, but, you know, Ryan Anderson was the kind of guy that could get almost 10 rebounds a game if yeah. he, when, he, when he focuses on that when he was with uh, Orlando. And so that is what is exciting to me, is that not only is the guy who's going to knock down at a, an elite level um, – you know, uh, three pointers, but he's then going to give you that uh, some respect of a big man as well at a power forward position makes it very difficult to to handle a team like that. So um, you know, they made the playoffs, and again, we you know we even saw. So getting back to Monty Williams, you know, there was that crazy game where Steph Curry hits a three to tie it, and they win in overtime. Yeah. Um, and and you know, why didn't they foul? Well, it must be Monty Williams' ter- terrible coaching. And then he threw everybody under the bus and said, "No, we told them to foul. They just didn't." Um, you know, so then you start to wonder a lot of this stuff, you know, um, you know, is Monty Williams a bad coach? Does he not know this stuff and he's just not coaching it? Or, uh, I guess the other, uh, 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 thing could be that he is coaching it. They're not listening. I guess either way it reflects poorly as a coach. Yeah. I guess I got a feeling it's more the latter and Monty Williams is a, look, this isn't a nobody. This guy was a very highly respected assistant coach, um, around the league. It's just. When you step into that big chair, it's it's a different different things are asked of you, and 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 what you need to do in terms of of not just you know to use a business model example, you're not just running the marketing department. Now you've got to coalesce everybody into the same page, and you've got to you've got to set these bigger agendas. You know, Steve Kerr was really good at that last year, but he also learned at the feet of Greg Popovich and Phil Jackson, who mm-hmm. were arguably two of the very best ever at it. So he understood what he needed to do and kind of how to push the buttons and handle that situation perfectly. I, I, I don't know that he could do better, and it's going to be interesting to see this year. I, I think they're going to take a step back in terms of just pure wins, only because, again, the West is better, and I don't know that they're going to get 67. And last year, they were incredibly fortunate with health. Not only did they largely stay healthy, but everybody around them kept kind of going down. I, you know, that's not going to happen the same way two years in a row. Uh, true. Wait, wait. I'm sorry. Are you talking about the Pelicans were really lucky? No, no. I meant the Golden State. Oh, Golden State. I'm sorry. Yeah, because we pivoted. Uh, you're right. That's probably not going to happen. That again, they are so deep that they're going to at least be able to do the Spurs thing and, you know, limit Steph Curry's minutes and those guys, um, which is unfortunate for me since I have Steph Curry on my fantasy <laughs> team. Um, but I'm hoping, you know. But by the way, he didn't play that much last year. If you look at it, his minutes I think were yeah. below thirty-five, right? Or maybe closer to thirty. Um, fourth quarters at all. I mean, he was that, really right. Sat late in games a lot. Yeah, and I would imagine. Actually, that's not true. And we've seen this with the Bulls, and we've seen this with the Lakers when they're trying to uh, to uh, repeat. 
Uh, actually, wait, here's my, here's my memory now. The second year, oftentimes the team is better. Yeah. And and this certainly is the same kind of scenario. They were a young team. They had you know had a little bit of playoff experience, but not a ton. And then they broke through. So it's possible, right? You know, I remember the Bulls' second championship. They they made a run at seventy wins and didn't quite get there, but got close. Uh, and then I know the Lakers' second championship, right? That was a real easy coast for them, right? Right. Well, that was the year, though. That second year, if you're talking this, oh, I guess are you talking the Shaq? I was thinking the Shaq Kobe era, but that yeah. was a little. That second title there was the one where they went like fifteen and one in the playoffs, but that was a year that like Shaq was injured for part of the year. They they. They really just kind of got healthy and got right um, and kind of flipped the switch, so to speak, um, you know, in the playoffs. I think that was the second year the Lakers won, they, they were a better team than, uh, than maybe that first year with, with Kobe and Powell. Um, the, mm-hmm. uh, they also had a little – I mean, I, I still look back to that and think that they don't win that title without Metal World Peace. I mean, he was the best player in Game 7 against the against – the, um, against the Boston because mm-hmm. like you know normal human pressure doesn't affect him the same way <laughs> well yeah I mean I, I kind of you know I, I'm not the biggest Kobe fan and maybe people who are who are a part of my audience are laughing because they, they probably think it's even you know the opposite I'm really against him either way uh, you know any way you want to slice that game seven but he laid a serious egg you're right yeah. he, he came out he shot horribly he took terrible shots you know, everybody shot poorly in that game, but it doesn't matter. It's a game seven. It was your, his chance. Let me ask you this. I, I've said this before, but, you know, when we're talking about the finals and we're thinking about the championships and we're talking about Michael Jordan, maybe in comparison to Kobe, Michael had, you know, a, a, a half dozen seminal finals moments, right? The shrug, the spectacular move up and under, the, the final shot in Utah. Um, you know, and it seems like the shrug is a good example where Michael – wouldn't necessarily try and force those moments to happen, right? He kind of was in the moment he played, and, oh, my God, look what we did. Where, to me, it feels like Kobe plays trying to force those moments to happen, and they don't often do it that way. Um, do you have – are there seminal finals moments that Kobe has? You know, it's funny because when you think – when I think of Kobe's, like, the most definitive Kobe plays, like, the first one that pops into my mind is actually Game 7 of the Western Conference Finals in 2000 against wow. Portland. The lob? The lob to Shaq and that, that, that quarter, which, by the way, if you ever go walk back and watch that game, was way more about Portland getting tight. Was, Portland, and, and I was actually at that game, Portland I, was horrible in the fourth quarter, just missing stuff they'd made all game. They, they saw it there, and they got tight, and the Lakers pushed. But um, to me, that's always one of the first ones. When you think about his finals moment, yeah, I don't know. I mean, he's had some big games. He's put up big big numbers, but I don't know that he's had that – like you said, the same kind of seminal moments that, that Jordan has, or even, I don't know. I, I don't know. Maybe it's a thing of errors, too, because I don't think of Duncan that way. I don't think, like, wow, there was this Duncan moment, but the guy's got five rings and his mm-hmm. bet is the guy you're going to. When we're, I think he's the guy we're going to talk about when it's best of this era. It's going to be Duncan or Kobe. Oh, well, well and? <laughs> I, I see, and Kobe fans will hate me for this. I think Kobe's, maybe Kobe's ceiling was higher. It was certainly more entertaining, but in terms of pure consistency, in terms of I mean, the Spurs have won outside of the lockout years fifty games a year for was it fifteen years now? Mm-hmm. It, it is ridiculous their run of consistency, and that obviously goes well beyond just Duncan. It 
speaks to Popovich and, and the players they bring in in the system and all of that. But that said, to me, that I don't know that we're ever going to see that level of consistency. He is, to me, the best power forward ever with all due respect to Karl Malone. I don't know that there's a better four that's ever played the game than Tim Duncan. And Kobe, you know, what is he, the second or third best wing? I mean, shooting guard or winger, however you're going to define that. I mean, he's a step back because Jordan's there. So I, I'd lean Duncan in that conversation, but it's, you know, it's <laughs> you mm-hmm. can make a really good Kobe case. I mean, it depends on what you want to value. Obviously, yeah. Kobe could do, like, more things, right? He handled yeah. the ball. And he would, you know, he, you know, more was placed he, on Kobe in some ways. What's that? I, I think more pressure was placed on Kobe to handle the ball and make some plays and do those kind of things than, than it was with Duncan. Right, and that's just sort of the, the dichotomy between a big man and a wing. And anyway, I suppose um, I, I just feel like you know this came up on Twitter the other day where you know someone wanted to defend Kobe as a passer, and I felt like yeah, he there were times when he goes on these binges where he just starts throwing great passes. But and, and it's maybe it's not a fault of his own or just my, my bias. Who knows? He never seemed to really enjoy doing that. And not that you need to jump up and down and point to that guy and high-five him after he scores on a nice pass from yours. But it always felt like, and it could just be aesthetics to me, it always felt like he was begrudgingly showing people for a very finite amount of time, yes, I can do this, I can set people up and make them score. But then he always will gravitate towards, you know, sort of, shooting it more often than not and, and maybe like maybe the the agenda is to shoot it before the possession starts and that's always what kind of rubbed me a little bit wrong I think with Kobe there was always a pattern to his passing and it happened you know Jared Dudley talked about this when, when he was kind of bashing Kobe uh, not that long ago where, where he was saying look the knock on Kobe and why guys don't want to play with him is is he's trying to get a triple double every night it feels like so he goes out and scores a lot then once he gets some points he starts passing or I remember, you know, out here, you know, and you're based out in Los Angeles, too. You get the opposite of Kobe. I'm going to spend the first half of this game setting everybody else up. And then I'm just going to and then I'm just going to try to take over the second half. And there wasn't it was almost calculated. It wasn't as like in the flow. And here's the mismatch that we're going to try to exploit all the time. I mean, Kobe, no Kobe, especially peak Kobe was a walking mismatch. I mean, he he, he was a mismatch every game. But that confidence that makes him so great was also the thing that made him say, I don't need to pass it here. Me taking this shot, contested fadeaway over a double team is still better than hitting my teammates. And, you know, in 2006 when that teammate was Smush Parker, that was probably the right call. But it wasn't always the right call later on, and he kept doing it. But what about the notion of, and I think this is what's gone away, when Michael began his career, um, he, he, was always, he was roundly criticized for many seasons for yeah. not helping his teammates get better, not making his teammates better. And I, I don't think we hear that drumbeat anymore. And so you talk about guys like Smush Parker and that, or even what we saw with LeBron in the finals, was, you know, like, and this is my take on how LeBron decided to ISO you know, almost exclusively, right? Because he figured, well, our team is, is, is not as good as it, as it was with the injuries, so we have to do this, right? Well, my take on it is and I certainly don't think David Blatt would ever have signed off on that kind of offense, knowing what he believes in and the kind of system he's been running for 20 years outside of the NBA. So my take on that is, yeah, like the, the Cavaliers lose the series seven game, uh, 10 out of 10 times playing that way. Um, but at least if you tried to play and set your team and use your gravity, like we saw the triangle help Michael, in, you know, after they started winning, 
then you at least have a shot. Maybe you win two out of 10 times, but it's certainly better than zero. And yet no one seems to recognize that. And they think that, oh yeah, Kobe's right. That double, that, that fade away over a double team is better when I don't think it necessarily is. I don't know that it is. Although I will say in the case of this finals too, I, I, part of that should go to the fact that Golden State's a really good defensive team. Like Golden State played Mm -hmm. really strong defense. And because of that, you know, they adjusted really well to what they were doing. Remember, I think it was a game four, game five, when um, J.R. Smith, or maybe it was game six, J.R. Smith gets hot at the start. I think it was game five. J.R. Smith gets hot at the start, and they're like, "Uh uh-oh, here comes that J.R. Smith, he can't miss game. And they adjusted and just started really pressuring him, taking the ball, taking the, not letting him get the ball, uh, Mm -hmm. you know, contesting passes to him, and and he faded. Like, they were able to take him out of the games. They had the players to make those kind of defensive adjustments to whatever was going on and, and, and beat you. And that's obviously what made them so good last year, that that defense gets underrated. And the fact that they are, more than any team in the NBA, able to go small and not get hurt defensively because of Draymond Green, that changes the equation for them. True. I, I Believe me, I don't want to take anything away from Golden State's uh, defense without question. However... Uh, I would also argue that the Cavaliers made it easier on them. We yeah. saw those those freeze frames on Twitter where it was like a wall of four guys standing there yeah. because the other four guys in the Wisa were standing there too. And um, it's just it's not the way basketball should be played. And I feel like you know LeBron got criticized with the, the Mark Stein article and all those kind of things. Yeah. And you know, and there's no question the way he's treated his coaches over the years is certainly different than you know most regular players and even a lot of stars. I feel like I, I, I we, one day we can interview him. I'm kind of curious what his view of the coach is because he probably looks at him as this funny little guy at the end of the bench wearing a suit. You know, um, he ran over Mike Brown apparently in Cleveland. He'd call timeouts. He'd sub people in. He'd run the timeouts when there were. You know, maybe Mike Brown would get a chance to speak a little bit. But it was like, you know, when that kind of stuff happens, you you need support of a coach who's got experience who knows what he's doing. And I feel like this is the important part of the year now when they start the year. Will David Blatt be able to get some more semblance of control and influence over how they play that game? I think that that's a, yeah, a really good point. It's also going to be interesting to see how they start the year with Kyrie out, you know, and they're, you know, injured still. He he won't be, you know, I, he's he'll be back before January, which was their like that. That was them trying to control the storyline. Like if we say it's January, then he comes back around, you know, somewhere between Thanksgiving and Christmas. Look, he came back early, but you know, they're still going to have to play the first weeks of the season, month of the season plus without him, and. Without Kyrie Irving, you know, you, Mo Williams is a great, you know, and Del Vadova can, can fill in, but how are they going to use Kevin Love? How are they going to set this up? Are they finally going to get Kevin Love playing better within their offense? And then what happens when they add Kyrie back into that mix? I mean, mm-hmm. That's all going to be really interesting. You know, like you said, I know, and you know, Blatt wants to run, frankly, an offense a lot more like Golden State ran, mm-hmm. but he's, I don't know that he's going to be able, I, he, I don't think he's the guy in control or with the ultimate power, and I don't know how much of that he'll really be able to implement. Uh, and it's too bad. And, I mean, listen, LeBron is the best player in the game, and he deserves some deference, and, and it's a partnership, I understand. But, you know, Michael Jordan, while it might have taken him a little bit of time to buy into the triangle, for instance, when he finally did, you could see that they were able to then, you know, he could finally make his teammates better by utilizing it. And I just feel like LeBron's never learned that, never been in a situation where, um, you know, he's had a coach that could, that could you know, 
teach him that in a way. And it, it hasn't mattered much. The guys won a couple of championships, um, right? But, um, you know, certainly last year, uh, it was really sort of this frustrating to watch. And, you know, when we were charting offense in Miami, in, you know, uh, in those, those finals years, you know, it was so random what they ran. And their best sets, they would never run hardly at all. And uh, I, I got the impression that that was happening there, too, where, you know, while they were playing in the speed of the game, LeBron just started calling sets, on, you know, while they were coming down. And, um, and it, it, was, it was like a dartboard, like literally just sort of, oh, let's just, you know, let's run this play. I swear, that's what it felt like when you looked, took a step back. And that's what a coach is supposed to be there for, to help get control. I mean, we saw um, Rick Carlisle, right, freak out on Rondo for not running one play that he called. <laughs> yeah. You know? And that's, well, yeah, and, and that kind of control, like, you, you, I don't think you can mix Carlisle and LeBron and make it work. But that control is, look, LeBron went back to Cleveland for a few reasons. Going home was certainly one of them. Exchanging the older core in Miami for a younger core in Cleveland that could win longer is certainly, you know, part of it. But control was part of it. Power within the organization, as much as he denies it, having that power to get players he wants to come there to push deals to, you know, I don't, and, 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 and then, and then, then also have that control over the coach and coaching system. I think it took, I think Blatt is, comes off when you talk to him is almost defensive about his role and what he does there because he doesn't want to be seen as powerless. And mm-hmm. I, I, I think that he's got some power and some say to a point, but like you said, from that Mark Stein article, if LeBron's doing his own thing, nobody else is going to listen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they threw him under the bus because, you know, listen, the whole thing about calling that final play against Chicago, that not for having LeBron inbound it, you know, uh, whether or not that was a good decision or not from a coaching standpoint. And by the way, LeBron was 10 for 29 up until that point. Or no, 9 for 29. So it's not like, I mean, I could have seen as a coach being like, yeah, let's not, you know, this is not our best option here at this point during this game. But the worst part was that they let it out in the media right after the game. And that's a real indication of something. I, I wonder how long of a, of a leash, uh, so, so to speak, uh, Blatt has this year. Um, you know, they should start out okay. They're in the East. They, you know, it shouldn't be much of an issue. But you remember what happened last year? They didn't start out so well. Um, and uh, and th- I don't know if he's going to be able to survive another that kind of a month and a half of scrutiny. I, I, I don't think that that's going to be the problem, though. I, a, I think you're right. I think they're going to start off faster. I think they got through their kind of bumps part of, of this. But I think Blatt and LeBron have reached a, if not an understanding, a detente. A, a mm-hmm. you know, and, and I think that that little play was a little bit of that, you know, LeBron saying that after the game was a little bit of that power play coming out in public, saying, hey, you're not, I'm going to be the guy in the corner. Even if I end up not getting the guy the pass because, you know, four defenders go to me, I'm not the guy standing outside throwing the ball in. Although that is a very European thing, too, by the way. If you watch FIBA, you watch this. Your best passer makes that inbound pass, even if that's your best shooter. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think he kind of fell back to that, but you just can't do that in the NBA power structure and, and star, you know, the star power structure. Um, I, but I don't think this year you're going to see that with LeBron. I think you're going to see LeBron and Black again, kind of keep this weird, uneasy dance. But unless something strange happens, I, I think what LeBron's got is the devil he knows and somebody feels he's got control, I don't know, control over the power to do what he wants with. If you dump him and you bring in whomever, you know, Mark Jackson will lobby for that job because he's got the same agent as LeBron and Tristan and 
whoever else might be mentioned in that discussion. That, that's a wild card. Suddenly it's not that easy anymore. You've got to, you know, you've got to quote unquote break in a new coach. I think, I think he's kind of comfortable with what he's got and he thinks he can win with it. A couple of things uh, that, you, that you bring up on that is, you know, if, if, you know, Blatt and LeBron have gotten a little bit closer towards some sort of a truce, what you say, that's actually a win for Blatt because that then opens the door, I imagine, eventually to start letting his influence creep in, right? Like yeah. that's, that's better than the other version of it. I would agree. And plus, I think if LeBron would trust what he wants to do on offense a little, it'd be good for them. You know, and I, they did a little of it in Miami. I mean, you, 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 you know, you, you didn't love the sets they were running, but that offense moved the ball really mm-hmm. not quite as well as the Spurs did, but they moved the ball and they moved off the ball and they did some of the things that, you know, kind of a modern NBA offense needs to do. And they, they didn't do that much um, last year in, in Cleveland, and they were able to get away with it. And frankly, they'll be able to get away with it this year. They're still, they're still clearing away the class of the East. We wrote about this the other day. The, you know, the, the first of our 51 questions previews at NBC Sports, for the, you know, we're, we're previewing the season with 51 questions. The first question was, who's the second best team in the East? Because there's not a debate about who's first. Mm-hmm. Like, it's, it's, it's Cleveland and then everybody else. The question is, who's number two? Absolutely, and it's it's still going to have to shake out because you know, obviously the Bulls with a new coach is going to yeah. that's going to be an interesting thing. Which it could be better. I mean, certainly they're not going to overplay their players there. And uh, I like what Hoiberg does on offense. Uh, I don't know if Derek Rose does, <laughs> but uh, we'll have to find out how that that plays out too. You know, there, there's also the issue of um, you know here's here's why I, like, I liken it to Trevor Ariza. I, we were once hanging around him at a camp, and somebody asked him who his favorite coach was. And he said, Phil Jackson. And they asked him why. And uh, he said, because he gave me the most freedom I ever had on offense. And I kind of started to laugh in the corner because, you know, you and I, we, we, you were there right, uh, right there. You, yeah. He never had, he didn't have any freedom on offense in the triangle for those teams. But Phil Jackson made him think that he did. Yeah. And that's a real big power that, you know, a coach can kind of have. And that I suppose that could be what maybe Blatt needs to eventually work towards with LeBron. Yeah. And, and well, there's two things there. Uh, one is that what the, the, the freedom within the triangle is that it is a read and react offense as opposed to more set, you know, like, oh, the defense did this. So I've got to do this type of thing. So there is the sense that you have some control over what's going on mm-hmm. as opposed to. I set this pick, then I roll here, then I do this, and it's it's not as you know structured like an NFL play type of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think Phil, you, you touched on what I've always thought was Phil Jackson's greatest gift, which is he could get guys to do what he wanted them to do within the system or what role they wanted to play. But he was the master at getting them to think it was their own idea, mm-hmm. and and he that's part of the reason you know he'd let them play through trouble and and do all these things. He was able to manipulate and guide them to think eventually to come around to like, this is what I want to do because this is what's best. And just frankly, like anybody listening who's, you know, are you more motivated by the idea that's your own that you're trying to incorporate in the company or the idea that your boss has handed you to do? Like, if it's your idea, you're into it. And Phil was the master at getting guys to think that what he wanted them to do was their own idea. 
Absolutely. And you know, Inception, he could have probably starred in that movie. Yes. And uh, and that is the trick. And, you know, it, it does take a while. And uh, I really do hope that they kind of get closer to that because it's just it just frustrates me as a, from a coaching standpoint when you see that. I mean, it even goes down to the idea that LeBron like sort of refuses to play power forward because I suppose it means he has to then guard somebody big who's going to back him down and he doesn't like that. And that just frustrates me too only because – you know, you're supposed to do what's best for the team. And and if that's what's best for the team, and you got to, okay, play a little defense. Because, by the way, there is no question LeBron James could be awesome on defense at the power well, forward and position. And is when he wants to be, yes. And so it's like, what, what, don't and, and it sounds like he's whining a little bit. Or like, oh, I'm not going to do that. You better not do that. I, I mean, it's not like we only see that. I think LaMarcus Aldridge with the, being playing center was the same way. Um, and you know that that's just that's too bad. I mean, we saw Michael Jordan guard Vlade Divac in the finals when they finally realized that Pippen was better on Magic. He didn't say anything; he just did it. And Divac tried to post him up, and he'd front him. It was great. It was like it was playing basketball. Those are that. Those are the kind of things that frustrate me to no end. Especially you know, in a small ball era, you know, or where the game's at least evolving to go in the next five, ten years. And I, I I've written and said I, I think we'll look back at the Golden State. Um, victory is kind of the first salvo. The first, even though it might spin out of what Mike D'Antoni started, this was the that was the first team that really made it work. That kind of smaller ball, up tempo. That that's you know three balls. Um, that mm-hmm. that style they made it work, and partially because of the personnel they had, but they made it work. And we'll look back on this the, the coming basketball era as, as having really started with with what they did uh, with that championship in that kind of era in that kind of style of play. LeBron's the best power forward in the league. Like, you can't guard that guy at the four, and he can guard, you know, he's physical enough to guard people. He can, you know, look, he can do whatever he wants to on the court. He's just got to decide he wants to do it. Right. And you know, and eventually he's probably going to have to as he slows down yeah. um, and, you know, uh, yeah. it stops taking visits to South Beach in the middle of the year. He'll, um, you know, he's going to have to start to do that, I would imagine. That's not going to be, you know, there's not going to be a choice there. Um so we'll see how that develops. It's interesting. Uh, Kurt, tell me, how, how long have you been on the beat in L.A. and covering the, the teams uh, closely? You know, I, the, the long career story arc here is that um, the year 2004, the year after uh, Shaq was, was, the, the, was the fall of 2004, so the season after Shaq was sent out, um, I was living in L.A. and was thinking of, you know, was working a paper, wanted to start, was thinking about starting a, a, a blog and was frustrated reading about the Lakers because nobody was talking about what Rudy Tomjanovich was doing on offense which, and, and with their system, which was a disaster. And that's, Rudy's T's a great coach, but he was trying to fit some, he, he went Mike D'Antoni, was fitting some round pegs into some square holes. Plus it was just the advent of, of uh, you know, of, of modern kind of analytic metrics were just really starting to come out. You were just able, you know, I read basketball on paper and you were able to look up some of this stuff suddenly on per possession and stuff that was kind of, kind of new and, and, you know, offensive ratings and all this kind of stuff. And so I, I was frustrated. I'm like, you know what, I'm just going to start my own blog. And I started something called Form Blue and Gold, which was a Laker blog that I ran until 2010. Um, and I was, it honestly, I, it's the, Kind of, I don't think it happens this way anymore. It's the old school NBA, you know, old school blogging story where, like, I really did start this as a hobby. I had a full time job, and it was just something I was kind of doing on the side, and it spiraled and spiraled. And pretty soon, I was writing some stuff with, 
you know, I was working with Henry Abbott and writing it through Hoop, and I'd worked with Zach Lowe on some stuff. And then suddenly um, NBC LA came calling and said, hey, we want to write it for our online site. And that kind of eventually grew into working for NBC Sports National. But I ran that Laker blog up until 2010 when I got the job with NBC Sports. And that's a national job. I'm covering the entire league. But I am based out of L.A. And I love it. A, I get to see a lot of Lakers and Clippers, which are always interesting stories. But being based out here, everybody's got to come through twice. You know, if, if I were in Portland or, or Memphis or, or Phoenix or wherever, you know, most of the teams will come through once. But here in L.A., you know, the Cavaliers have got to come through and play everybody twice. Um, whoever and, and, you know, every, all the top teams in the West will be through eight times because they got to play the Lakers four times and the Clippers four times. So mm -hmm. it's really an advantage to get to see a lot of these teams um, up close and, and kind of be around them a little bit more. Well, let's talk a little bit about, uh, to, to wrap up here, you know, recently in, on TMZ of all places, I, somehow they kind of scooped everybody, I guess. They came out with an article talking about what Bill Simmons had mentioned a few weeks ago about the dysfunction in the front office. And it's really kind of bizarre because it's hard to imagine uh, Julian Zucker, who was brought in by you know, Balmer um, on the business side, like they're trying to allege that she's involved in like playing time issues and, and the player development. Do, you know, what do you know about this whole thing? I'm curious. I don't know how bad it is. I will say this. The fact that this is getting – look, that's a couple of people talk to TMZ about this means that A, there is something there, but B, there's some people with an agenda. And, and, and whether that's legitimate or not, whether she's, whether she's, you know, look, like any business, there's going to be a little bleed over between the business side and the, the basketball operations side in terms of how you're going to market things and who you want. But at the end of the day, the basketball people have to make the basketball decisions the same way the marketing people have to make the marketing decisions. And if she's really trying to bleed that over, uh, too much than um, like you might in a tech company or something, then that can't happen. Um, and Steve Ballmer is the one who's got to step in and get everybody in their lanes and let, let everybody go. But I wrote about this yesterday. At the end of the day, I'm not sure it really matters that much in terms of the product on the court. I, the, the number of dysfunctional teams that are dysfunctional franchises that have won in pro sports is it's a long and storied list, <laughs> right. and and at the you know honestly near the top of it is a team we discussed a lot today. Those Jordan era Bulls were a mess. Phil Jackson's fighting with with Jerry Krause. The you know Reinsdorf's just kind of off counting his money, letting them battle it out. Kukoc is thrown in the middle of this and just getting you know. Yep. Jordan's punching teammates. It's a dysfunctional situation that won six championships. I'm not sure that whatever dysfunction there is within the Clippers impacts them on the court at all uh okay i agree and i, I just feel yeah it, it, there's some sort of agenda going on here yeah it's just very very bizarre because uh i don't know it's just like i've been around enough just i can't picture her in her role somehow feeling like she has the ability to go in there and try and, and like no one knows who to listen to but i mean it, it, but i can't believe it'd be related to anything related to Playing time or or uh, you know player development stuff of like what they should you know they, we should see guys doing more of I mean I don't know I mean who knows maybe she came in and said oh here's my buddy who's a shooting coach he should work with Blake Griffin like I don't know um, very strange stuff uh, yeah, and again you're I, right we I can't yeah. I can't picture Doc Rivers putting up with it right honestly and and, I, and that's the other thing that and that makes it interesting about look 
again, if somebody leaked this, it's somebody with an agenda. Whoever talked to them is many. But, but that said, look, Doc, Doc is just not going to put up with this. Doc, Doc is going. He wants complete. He came here in part to get complete control of a basketball operations side. He's not giving that up. Absolutely, and it's also impressive that he went from a uh, Doc, good coach, bad GM, with and then with no cap room, no movement ability at all. And uh, and everyone was criticizing him for that, and yet you know look what they did. They they made more moves than anybody. Yeah, they 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 backed themselves. I mean, like the Spencer Hawes deal that hard capped them, and all this stuff they'd done was so bad. And they and look they the, right down to this summer when they got fined for you know trying to you know hey by the way we're going to get Giandre we're going to give you a two hundred thousand dollar Lexus deal you know sponsorship <laughs> deal it, it, it's kind of illegal offer that they get fined for. They've made a lot of, of Steve Ballmer still on a learning curve mistakes. But all that said, Doc Rivers, the GM, knocked it out of the park this summer. And that's the reason they're legitimate contenders. They are as they, they, we can debate whether they're as deep as, as the Spurs or the Warriors, but they're in the conversation now. And that was their biggest problem. Well, absolutely. And Kurt, I got to tell you, you knocked it out of the park today with us with this great podcast and information about, I mean, this is probably as wide ranging of a pod as I've done in a while. So um, thank you so much for coming on. You know, let's make this a regular thing. You should come on and check in with us and give us some insights. Hey, happy to anytime, man. And I look forward to seeing you around. Uh, since you're out here in LA, I know some places that serve, um, it's called beer. I, I'll buy you one. I think you'd like it. Um, is it yellow? Yeah, yeah, most of it. Kind of a darkish amber. Yeah. All right. I mean, because if it's bubbly and yellow, I can handle it. So that sounds okay. great. And, you know, <laughs> without question, and if you're younger than 21, please do not uh, do yeah. not try that. And, uh, again, don't forget, sports fans, at B-Ball Breakdown, we're not a channel. We're a conversation. You in? You in, Kurt? I'm in. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can seem intense. Like, breakup R&B intense. I thought you said you love the sweater that I got you. If you didn't, you could have told me. Geico makes it easy. Just go to geico.com anytime to update or check your policy without all the extra drama. I even had a gift receipt. Safeway makes it easy to save at the pump with your club card because you can use up to 20 cents per gallon in Safeway gas rewards at participating Chevron and Texaco stations. Get more mileage out of your grocery budget, up to 20 cents per gallon. When you shop more at Safeway, you save more at Chevron and Texaco. Maximum reward at participating Chevron or Texaco stations is 20 cents per gallon in a single fill-up, up to 25 gallons. Cannot be combined with any other Safeway gas reward offer. Restrictions and exclusions apply. See complete details at Safeway.com or in-store.